Good morning. The first reading today is from Isaiah, chapter 7, verses 1 to 17. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now, the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, go out you and your son Shear Jasud to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field. Say to him, be careful, keep calm and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smouldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Remaliah. Aram, Ephraim and Remaliah's son have plotted your ruin, saying, let us invade Judah, let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tabiel king over it. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place, it will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will too be shattered to be, to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Remaliah's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He'll be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. And the second reading is from Matthew 1, 18 to 25. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, 
but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, may your word live in us and bear much fruit to your glory. Amen. The weary world rejoices. That is our theme for Advent and Christmas here at Church Hill Anglican. The phrase is from a 19th century French carol, which in English is called, O Holy Night. O Holy Night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Saviour's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining, till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. The point is that the coming of Christ is hope and joy for a world weary and troubled. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. We thought at the end of 2020, this theme might resonate just a little. And in the series, we're looking at the coming of Christ through the prism of key texts in the Old Testament book of the prophet Isaiah. And this morning, our focus is Isaiah chapter 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. <clears throat> now, the moment anyone with any familiarity with the Christmas story hears that text, they think of the way the Gospel of Matthew uses this sentence. Matthew 1.22, all this was took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel which means God with us. The all this is just what the gospel has narrated in informing us, as Matthew puts it, quote, how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. Matthew describes an unusual situation in verse 18, 18 of chapter 1. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. This is not a normal pregnancy in any way, but she's pledged to be married to Joseph, and the pregnancy is before they come together. And this is in the context in which being pledged to be married or betrothed has the same legal force as being married. Joseph, assuming Mary is an adulteress, is nonetheless concerned not to ruin her life by exposing her to public disgrace, and so intends to divorce her quietly. His plans are upended by a dream. An angel of the Lord appeared, appears to Joseph in what must have been a completely astounding message. I'm reading from verse 20. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus, or Joshua in its Hebrew form, is a fairly common name at the time. 
literally Yeshua means the Lord is my salvation or the Lord is salvation or the Lord saves the child will be called Joshua Jesus because he will save his people from their sins which is interesting the name means the Lord will save given to the child because he will save we might come back to this shortly well all this is what Matthew is referring to when he writes in verse 23 all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they'll call him Emmanuel which means God with us so let us take a closer look at what the Lord said through the prophet one of the keys to understanding Matthew or any other of the prophets of the Gospels rather for that matter is to realize they tell their story constantly echoing and referencing an important prequel what we call the Old Testament Jesus is not the beginning of a story it's not nothing happens then Jesus comes along no, he's part of a story. He's its fulfillment. He's its climax. And that story involves the Lord God in his purpose of bringing blessing to his alienated and weary world, choosing a people to be his people, Israel, rescuing them from slavery and planting them in their own land that he may dwell among them. And so that's where we have to go. Back to the year 734 BC, back to Israel, back to Isaiah, chapter 7, back to what the Lord said through his prophet. The words in spoken in question were spoken to Ahaz, the king of Judah, in the midst of an urgent political and military crisis. Let me explain with the help of a map. Here is the east, eastern of the Mediterranean. There is Jordan River, the Dead Sea, Sea of Galilee, mountains of Judea, the Holy Land. After King Solomon, Israel split into two. The original kingdom was now called Judah, after the predominant tribe there, and its capital remained Jerusalem with a temple, and its king remained of the house of David. Confusingly, the northern kingdom was now called Israel, which used to be the name of the whole lot. Although it's also called Ephraim, after one of the main tribes there. And in this prophecy, the word Ephraim is used as much as the word Israel. But there you are. To the north of the divided kingdom is Aram, modern-day Syria. And its capital is Damascus. Now, around our time, which is 734 BC, there's another nation that's not on the map. It's probably up here somewhere... Uh, at the Chancel, Ar Chancel Arch or somewhere over there, I imagine. And this nation is the cause of all the trouble that's going to occur. It's to the northeast on the river Tigris. The growing superpower, Assyria, was on the rise and on its way to subjugate all the little nations in the region. The Syrians, the Assyrians, the Assyrians were a cruel and ruthless conquerors. Though it was possible to buy time by paying them a massive tribute and becoming a vassal state, which is what almost everybody did for a while. But after a coup d'etat in the northern kingdom of Israel, a um, 
Pekka, a army officer, seized power and conspired with the king of Aram, Rezan, to break free from the Assyrian yoke, break free of the, of the oppression of Syria and the tribute. And they insisted that King Ahaz of Judah join them, so there'd be a alliance of three in their anti-Assyrian anti conspiracy. But Ahaz would have nothing of it. And so the other two, Israel and Aram, invaded Judah. And it's Israelites invading Israelites, right? See what's going on here? And the goal was to force a regime change down here so that, so that Judah would join them, change of Assyrian policy, and Judah would join them. That's where our reading in chapter 7 of Isaiah picks up. The crisis of 734 means that King Ahaz and the people of Jerusalem are facing not so much a weary world as a terrifying one. Thanks, Emma. However, the Lord speaks to the prophet Isaiah, telling him to meet King Ahaz with a word of reassurance. Chapter 7, verse 4 of Isaiah. Be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Don't lose heart because of these two smouldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Remiah. Why should Ahaz keep calm and not lose heart? Verse 7. Yet this is what the Sovereign Lord says, it will not take place, it will not happen. Jump a bit. Within 65 years, Ephraim, that's Israel, too will be, shat we will be too shattered to be a people. Far from letting Rezin and Pekah, the two northern groups, Israel and Aram, over on the kingdom of Judah, the Lord promise, promises it'll be their kingdoms that will be overrun. Ahaz should not fear because the sovereign Lord will protect his people, Judah. And notice the last part of the promise very carefully. The last part of verse 9 calls for response from Ahaz, king of Judah. Do not, if you don't stand firm in your faith, in the faith, your faith rather, you will not stand at all. In other words, the key is Ahaz's trust in the Lord's promise in the crisis. And to strengthen Ahaz's trust, Isaiah tells him to ask the Lord, his God, for a sign, whether the deepest depths or the highest heights, that is, whatever he wants, invited to seek this confirmation from the Lord. Piously, Ahaz refuses. I will not, he says, I will not put the Lord to the test. This turns out to be hypothetical, hypocritical claptrap. Although not mentioned here in Isaiah, if you go to 2 Kings 16, which gives the narrative of this, of this great crisis uh, in, in, in more detail, you'll discover that Ahaz has already made plans, plans that do not involve the sovereign Lord. Let me just read uh, 2 Kings 16, 7 through 8. Quote, Ahaz sent messengers to say to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, I am your servant and vassal. Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Aram and the king of Israel who are attacking me. And Ahaz took the silver and gold found in the temple of the Lord and the treasuries of the royal palace and sent them as a gift to the king of Assyria. He has put his trust in the power of the Assyrians. He has even stripped the temple of the Lord 
to buy protection from them. Ahaz's refusal provokes Isaiah to accuse him of provoking God as well as man. He'll get a sign anyway, whatever he says. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. That's the sign. How is that the sign? Isaiah continues, verse 15. He'll be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. Isaiah says that the child, before he's even reached the age of accountability, the threat of these two kings will disappear. Their lands will be laid waste. Which is, in fact, exactly what happened. If we take the age of accountability to be, say, 12, which is, even today, a Jewish boy has his bar mitzvah, it turned out that a mere 12 years after this prophecy was spoken, the lands of Aram and the northern kingdom of Israel were overrun and the threat removed. And who is it that's going to smash the land of the two kings? You guessed it, the Assyrians. Ahaz asked for them and he gets them. They come sweeping down, overwhelming the lands of Aram and the northern kingdom of Israel and threatening Judah and, and Jerusalem itself. And behind all this is the Lord. In the passage just after one in our text, chapter 7, verse 20 of Isaiah, we read this. The Isaiah says, In that day the Lord will use a razor hired from beyond the Euphrates River, the king of Assyria, to shave your head and private parts and to cut off your beard also. The brutal barber from the north that the Lord uses. And although they will in the Lord's mercy survive, Jerusalem and Judea, Judah will undergo, if you don't mind me saying so, a very close shave indeed. So the sign is the coming conception and birth of a boy who will not be that old before the prophecy of deliverance comes true. Do we know who the child was? We know the prophecy came true. No, we don't. Not really. All we can say is Isaiah prophesies there'll be a son born to a young woman who she will name Emmanuel. The name Emmanuel is Hebrew for God is with us. Emmanuel, God is with us. I say young woman because the Hebrew word used here in Isaiah means a young woman of marriageable age. The NIV has translated it virgin, and she could have been that at the time of the prophecy, but gives young woman in the footnote. Maybe it's a young woman in the royal household. Some suggest possibly she's Isaiah's wife. We don't know. The point is that a child will be born in this crisis and in the alarming events that follow with the name Emmanuel as a sign that not only will these things take place, but the Lord God will be with his people, will be with Judah and Jerusalem, Emmanuel. Now, by now, I suspect you're becoming quite disappointed with how this sermon is turning out. 
We started with Mary being found pregnant through the Holy Spirit and Joseph being told not to be alarmed. She'll give birth to a son. You ought to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their, from their sins. And now we've ended up in the murky world of 8th century BC Middle Eastern politics. All because Matthew says all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said for the prophet. A virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Well, let me try to rescue it with these three points. One, not a prediction. It's clear by the phrase, to fulfill, whatever you might think, by the way, when Matthew says to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet, Matthew is not talking about Isaiah's word 700 years earlier beforehand being a simple prediction of the birth of Jesus. That's not what he means when he says, fulfilled the word of the prophet. It can't be because, as we know, that sign was all about events that happened 8th century BC. We know that Matthew doesn't mean prediction when he says fulfilment of prophecy from other times. He uses the same phrase here in the birth narratives. Let me give the clearest example. In chapter 2 of Matthew, uh, we read how Joseph took Jesus and his mother to Egypt for safety. And then the Gospel writer adds, verse 15 of chapter 2, quote, And so was fulfilled what the Lord said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I have called my son. When you look up that prophecy, it's in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. You read, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. You think, fair enough? Let me read it, the full thing in its context. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They kept sacrificing to the Baals. This is not a prediction. It's a description. It's a description of the unfaithfulness of Israel, God's son, whom God called out of Egypt in the Exodus, and yet were unfaithful to him. You say to me, what's going on? Indeed, what is going on? My second point, not a prediction, but a pattern. Not a prediction, but a pattern. With the Hosea quote, the point is perhaps clearest. Jesus is the faithful son called out of Egypt in contrast with Israel, who is the unfaithful son. It's a pattern in which Jesus fulfills, as it were, the prophet Isaiah in Hosea, by not being like Israel, but still fulfilling the pattern of coming out of Egypt. Israel, Jesus fulfills the story of Israel in his own life. So here with our text in chapter 1 of Matthew. Matthew's drawn our attention to the prophecy of Isaiah 7.14 because of a pattern which is triggered by a key word. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. As we've seen in Isaiah 7.14, was not about a virgin birth, at least, or better, a virginal conception, which Matthew's describing with Jesus. I imagine that Isaiah envisaged the virgin or young woman becoming pregnant the normal way. But the reality of Mary being pregnant through the Holy Spirit enables Matthew to see in that text a deeper meaning and pattern. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. Matthew uses Isaiah 7, especially in 
the text he's using here, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, in which the word is unambiguously virgin because of the unexpected reality of the virgin birth. By the way, this shows the nonsense of suggesting that some tried to do that Matthew made up the virgin birth story because he read Isaiah 7. It must be the other way around. Only because of the virgin birth would you ever for a minute think Isaiah 7 meant what Matthew thinks it means. Well, what does, what, what is, so he sees a pattern and a deeper meaning. What is that deeper meaning? Matthew spells it out for us almost literally. His emphasis is not, as it turns out, the virgin shall conceive. Listen to him again. Quote, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord said through the prophet, the virgin shall succeed and give, conceive and give birth to a son and they will, will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. He translates it for the reader so they don't miss it, which means God is with us. God with us. Certainly the virgin birth is an additional layer of fulfillment, a fulfillment the prophet Isaiah himself had probably never imagined. But the focus is not on the virgin birth, but the promise of Emmanuel, God with us. Could the deeper meaning be that this child will be God with us Literally. Is that why the name he has given is not actually literally Emmanuel, but Joshua, Jesus, the Lord will save, because he, the boy, will save his people from their sins. Emmanuel. Which leads to my final point. Emmanuel, God with us, is the hope for a weary world. This child born of Mary is the reality to which the Emmanuel sign in Isaiah pointed all along. That child born back in 734 BC was just a sign, a pointer that God had not abandoned his people. But Jesus goes one step further, not just the sign that God is with us, but the reality God with us. Jesus is God with us. God entering our weary world as one of us. That's what the virgin birth is all about, with all and all that involves. God with us. That's the fulfillment. And if you pull back a moment and look at the whole biblical story, you'll find that God with us is the goal of the whole thing. The Bible begins in Genesis 1 describing the Lord God ordering his creation, heaven and earth, as a kind of temple in which he will dwell with humankind. The, the final scene of the Bible is Revelation chapter 20, 21. And what does that describe? Let me read Revelation 21, 3. And I heard a voice from the thrones saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They'll be his people, and he himself will be with them and be their God. God with us is the climax 
of the Bible, of the whole of God's counsel. Now, the Apostle Paul puts it differently, but it's the same concept. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle talks about the coming of the resurrected Christ, having achieved complete sovereignty over all, then handing the kingdom to God the Father, to, and I quote, so that God may be all in all. So that God may be all in all. That's the goal of the work of Christ, the resurrected Christ. That God may be all in all means that God, in all his beauty and goodness and light and majesty and holiness, will fill all his creation. And that is also the moment of the fulfillment of creation. Not that he ceased to be creation, but he finally achieved its purpose. Now that promise of God in all his majesty and glory and holiness filling all creation is, whether the weary world knows it or not, it's hope and salvation. God with us. Now that is yet to be. But now, well, as we've seen the Gospel of Matthew, he begins his story after the genealogy with the events which fulfill an ancient prophecy. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and I'll call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. How does Matthew end his Gospel? What are the last words of his Gospel? Matthew ends his Gospel with that son, now raised from the dead, now all authority in heaven and on earth having been given to him, sending out his 11 disciples to teach the whole world also to become his disciples and obey his teachings. And his very last words, and surely I'm with you always to the end of the age. From beginning to end, he is Emmanuel. Today for you, Emmanuel, God with us, is as close to you as is the Lord Jesus Christ. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices.